Monday, Monday afternoon, theologians. I got to share something with you, Rick. It's okay. something that my wife, Joy, said to me just the other day. She uses this quote from time to time in just the right places. This time, I was getting the ice cream out of the freezer because we had finished our supper, and she saw that there were only a few little scrapings at the bottom, enough for maybe one single small scoop. And she said, I'm glad you're here with me at the end of all things. Oh, that's very sweet, mm -hmm. especially since it was the end of the ice cream. And at this point, we don't know who had the ice cream. I know. I think she was maybe trying to butter me up. <laughs> That's right. And if it was butter pecan, that would be easy. It'd be great. Well, well, that quote, as we know, comes from the movie The Return of the King by J.R.R. Tolkien. And that's when Frodo is talking with Sam, his loyal traveling companion. And they believe that they are quite literally at the end of all things, at least for the two of them. And it was good for Sam to know that Frodo appreciated his loyal friendship, his brotherhood, through the many trials they had come through together. And so with that, I must say, Rick, I'm glad you're here with me at the end of all things. And that's an interesting point in the film because there's a fate to black. And you think, oh, the movie's over and they're going to die in the lava on the rock. And then it comes back in and the eagles come. And then there's like 14 curtain calls in various places. Aragorn gets to sing, which is really odd. And there's a point that almost always brings a tear to my eye when Aragorn comes to the, the hobbits and they bow to him as the king and he says, you bow to no one. It wasn't the end of all things. It was really kind of the start of a new age. But when we talk about end times and the end of all things, we have to know that even now, all things center on Jesus. It's perhaps not the Jesus we see in the rest of the New Testament, but we want to talk about how John describes him in the first chapter of Revelation, because it's a very different picture than we have elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And it is different. It's uh, unique for us. It's a style of writing that some scholars said might have been because he was trying to get his things sent out from the Isle of Patmos. And he figured that if he wrote in this poetic, allegorical style, poetic style, they would just think he's a crazy man. And they'd say, yeah, go ahead and send his letters out. We don't care. He's a nutcase. Other people said, no, this is the kind of stuff that as we look at apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament, these people would have been familiar with that style of writing they would have known that it's trying to convey certain things that had deeper meaning than appears on the surface. So for those who didn't know that, it would go right through the censorship and it would get out into the hands of people to say, ah, okay, God wins, be ready. Jesus is coming back. Good things are going to happen. The end of all things may be near. And when it happens, God's going to be triumphant. So let's uh, look at this passage in Revelation to see what this person of Jesus looks like in apocalyptic style of literature from John. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That doesn't mean it was a human being, but it was like a human being, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, that was a symbol of wisdom, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. 
and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And that is such a powerful passage. And we look elsewhere in the New Testament, we see that the double-edged sword describes the word of God, which is really fitting given this picture, because it's God and the sword is coming out of his mouth. This passage combined with John 1 gives us an indication that Jesus not only fulfilled the entire word of God, he is the word of God. And when we speak scripture, we're actually speaking Jesus because he is that word. I mean, that's just yeah. an awesome concept. Yeah. This particular description of the heavenly Jesus is so awe-inspiring. It's very different from the picture we have of an earthly first century Jesus. Yep. In this passage, John falls on his face, and we don't know whether that's from fear or awe or both. And yet, in contrast, Satan still stands to defy him. Satan should fear him, but he just doesn't. I mean, to me, that's just the height of arrogance. I can see Satan not fearing Jesus in their earthly encounter where he goes through the temptation because Jesus had taken off his glory. But now, after the resurrection, I mean, he stands ready to fulfill his true purpose. It's incredible. And we see the same kind of trope. The reason I chose a movie as an analogy to begin with is that we see this kind of trope in movies today. But in the Bible, which, by the way, is the origin of this story, this meta-narrative that you and I live in, and the Bible is the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge. And we see how this protagonist, the hero, keeps getting knocked down over and over until it, we, he's just gotten taken literally almost to the edge of death itself. And in Jesus' case, he was dead, and then he rose back to life again. But we can't imagine how he's ever going to survive when we see all that he goes through. And yet somehow, miraculously, in this trope, the antagonist, the great enemy, is finally decisively defeated, and the protagonist comes out on top. But where do you think this plot came from? It's the Bible. <laughs> this is that story. And you can bet on it. Satan will be defeated once and for all time. We know that. We know that day is coming. And here's a term about some of these key players in the end times era. It's not a term contained in the Bible, just like the Trinity is not actually a term for Father, Son, Spirit, but it's a label that we give them because it's easier for us to pigeonhole those things in our brains and come to grips with, okay, these are three characters, and the three characters in the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, have a counterpart. And so that's where this comes into play. This is the label given to them. It's called the unholy Trinity. And the three characters in the unholy trinity are Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. Uh, we can even see today, you're very familiar with all these bad actors or imitators, pretenders, trying to pretend to be somebody else. Maybe they've got a counterfeit account or a counterfeit identity or both. And the purpose for this counterfeit is to take something from you. 
that's the basis for scams these days. We're familiar with them. Facebook and all these pretenders or fake ticket sales agencies. They're really good at having cloned websites that look just like the real website. People pretending to be from the utility company. You know, uh, we're going to turn off your electricity if you don't pay us $250 today. Or people claiming they're from the IRS, threatening to take you to jail. We're going to have a sheriff sent to your house this afternoon if you don't pay up because you've got back taxes. I saw a video recently and the title was Fake Cop Pulls Over Real Cop Does Not End Well. (laughs) (laughs) No, I bet it did not end well. Uh, Well, a common tactic of Satan is to imitate or counterfeit the things of God in order to make himself appear to be like God. That's why all this stuff that's coming down to us, if it takes something away from an innocent victim, that's evil. It's just downright evil. And that's ultimately from Satan, because that's his tactic. And what's commonly referred to as the unholy trinity, described vividly in Revelation chapters 12 and 13, is no exception. The Holy Trinity consists of God the Father, God the Son, who is Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, three individual manifestations of God, but the same essence. We sing about that in Christian churches when we sing that hymn, Holy, 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 because it's it ends with God in three persons, blessed Trinity. So it's all God, but there are three manifestations of God. Now, the counterparts in this unholy Trinity are Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And while the Holy Trinity is characterized by infinite truth, love, and goodness, the unholy Trinity, as you can imagine, (laughs) has diametrically opposing traits like deception and hatred and unadulterated evil. Some, Some awful folks, and we're going to talk about them in a little more detail here. Now, those two chapters... Revelation 12 and 13 also contains some prophetic passages that describe some of the events and the figures involved during specifically the second half of the seven-year tribulation period. And although many Bible passages allude to uh, to Satan in various forms, such as a serpent or an angel of light, he is described in 12.3 as a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. This color red can indicate that he has a vicious and homicidal personality. These seven heads symbolize seven evil kingdoms that Satan has empowered and used throughout history to attempt to prevent God's ultimate plan from coming to fruition. So five of these kingdoms have already gone. We can consider Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Now today we might see that the Iran-Russian alliance could be another one of those seven kingdoms. And we'll see a lot of connections in New Testament stuff because some of these people groups, uh, their countries were renamed differently than they were back in the Old Testament times. So some of the same people groups, but with different names. Right. We talked Uh, about, you know, Persia. Persia was the uh, predecessor of what is present-day Iran. Right. Precisely. And in real history, all these kingdoms severely oppressed and persecuted the Hebrews, the Jews, killing many of them. And we can still see today how a blatant hatred for the Jews still exists among many of the people groups, especially those who are descendants of those people groups written about in the Bible. Satan's intent was to prevent the birth of Christ. That 
was Revelation 12, 4. We see that. The sixth kingdom, which many scholars believe was probably Rome, was still in existence during the writing of this prophecy. And under Roman rule, we remember this from our Christmas story, King Herod had murdered a lot of Hebrew babies around the time of Christ's birth because of the wise guys, those sage uh, magi who came by and visited Herod. And Herod said, oh, when you find him, let me know, because I want to go and <laughs> worship him too. But we know he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. But they returned a different route, and Herod was really upset. And so he sent word to have all these babies killed. In fact, let me read that. It's from Matthew 2.16. It's a very dark part of what actually becomes the part of the birth story or the Christmas story. Matthew 2.16 says, When Herod saw that the wise men had tricked him, he was furious. So he gave an order to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem and in the surrounding area who were two years old or younger. And this was in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. So the seventh kingdom, which is more fierce and believe it or not, far crueler, not the donut crawler, which is spelled differently and has a twist to it. I mean, this these guys are twisted, but not like a crawler. Okay, sorry, tangent. The seventh kingdom, which is even far more cruel, is thought by many scholars will be the final world kingdom that the Antichrist will form during the end times. These kingdoms were also prophesied in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, and the seven crowns represents universal rule or complete rule. So the ten horns represents completeness, which means complete power or authority. So if you have complete power or authority over the entire globe, that's pretty complete <laughs> all the way. And that's what we think that seventh kingdom is supposed to be like. Yeah, and there's hundreds, maybe thousands of books written on speculation of who those 10 are, you know, what countries they could be. And it's it's just speculation. We just don't know how it's going to be lined out. And uh, we just take it by faith that uh, we will see how it works when uh, we get a little closer to those days. Yep. In Revelation 12, we see some important facts about Satan. Satan and one-third of the angels were cast out of heaven during a rebellion before the world began. We see that in 12.4. The archangel Michael and the other angels will go to war with Satan and his demons again, and Satan will be excluded from heaven forever, 12.7-9. And in his attempt to prevent God's fulfillment of his earthly kingdom, Satan will attempt to annihilate the Jews, as he has been trying to do for over 2,000 years. But God will supernaturally protect a remnant of the Jews in a location outside of Israel in the last months of the tribulation. And we see that both in Revelation and in Matthew chapter 24. Yep. And as we see current events taking place, you really do look back and you can see a couple of different times when God sent somebody away to a nearby area to protect them, including the baby Jesus, because an angel came to Mary and Joseph and said, you need to go south for a while, and I'll tell you when it's okay to return. So then they went back to Nazareth. All those things frame what becomes bookends, because many of the things that are going to happen in the end times were foreshadowed in these bookends at the front end of this big, huge book and the story. So the second member of the unholy trinity is the Antichrist or the beast. That's sort of the Bible's nickname for this, the beast. And the beast is described in Revelation chapter 13 and also in Daniel 7. And the beast comes out of the sea 
which typically in the Bible would refer to Gentile nations. And I put a little parenthetical note to myself because I recall reading that the Philistine people were also known as the Sea People. They came from the Mediterranean area. And the Philistines were always making war against Israel, as we recall from the Bible. So many of the Gentile nations and those who were against Israel became commonly known collectively as those who came from the sea. So the beast also has seven heads and ten horns, indicating that he has a connection to and is indwelt by Satan. The ten horns are usually seen as ten seats of world government because those horns represent the seat of power. That's the kind of government that will provide power to the Antichrist. They'll be supportive of him. Three of these will be totally yielded to the Antichrist, or they may be taken over completely by the Antichrist. We see that in Daniel 7, 8. The number 10 also indicates completion or totality. So in other words, a one world government. And the we one world all the time these days. <laughs> yes, we do. We hear a lot about the one world government. And I think that's probably why so many Bible reading people really get chills up their spine and jackals go up a lot when some politicians start speaking about a one world government. Because we know the Bible, that's not a good thing. The one world government in these end times will be just totally blasphemous. It will deny the true God. The final kingdom will possess traits in common with the former beast kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and particularly Rome, which was particularly evil. The final kingdoms seem to indicate that the Antichrist will be mortally wounded about halfway through the tribulation, we think, but Satan will miraculously heal his wound. And after this wondrous event, the world will be totally enthralled by the Antichrist. They will think that he's the next best thing since sliced bread. And they're going to worship Satan and the Antichrist himself, as we see in Revelation 13, 4 and 5. The Antichrist becomes emboldened, and dispensing with all pretenses of being a peaceful ruler, he will just openly blaspheme God. He will break his peace treaty with the Jews. He will attack believers and Jews, both. And he will desecrate the rebuilt Jewish temple, setting himself up as the one to be worshipped. We see that both in Revelation 13, 4 through 7, and Matthew 24, 15. This particular event has been called the abomination of desolation. A very uh, horrific event kind of is the climax or the peak of the PowerPoint for the unholy trinity. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one other person of this trinity that we need to chat about, and that is the false prophet. And he is described best in Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. And this second beast comes out of the earth, not the sea, possibly indicating that he will be an apostate Jew coming from Israel. Now, although he presents himself initially as meek and mild and benevolent, the horns indicate that he will have power. And Jesus expressly warned believers to watch out for false prophets who may look innocent, but are actually very destructive. You see that in Matthew 7, 15. Now, this false prophet speaks like a dragon, meaning that he will speak persuasively and deceptively to turn humans away from God and promote the worship of the Antichrist, and the seed of that is the worship of Satan. Now, the false prophet is capable of producing great signs and wonders. You know, we see, again, a parallel back to the time of Moses. Pharaoh's magicians were able to mimic 
some of the, the miracles that Moses was doing. Again, we see the same thing. This false prophet can even bring down fire from heaven. And as we said before, he sets up an image of the Antichrist to be worshipped. He gives life to the image and demands the worship of the image from all people, even executing those who refuse to worship the image. And the indication is that the method of execution will be beheading. And in recent years, we have seen beheading as a means of execution in the Middle East. Yes, we have. I think reading some of these things that, that you and I are looking at in this uh, specific episode reminds me that Jesus was warning about how evil a generation is that demands signs and wonders to prove that he was really the son of God, because he had already given them far more signs and wonders than they could possibly have needed to make that determination. And I think we need to be very cautious about that, because there are a lot of people today who will probably all be clamoring for signs and wonders. And because we know that there can be counterfeit signs and wonders, that can be very dangerous. Yeah, we see all through the New Testament, you know, signs and wonders. And at one point, they uh, clamored and said, give us a sign. And he says, you already have this sign. If you didn't believe that one, why will you believe a new one? Yeah, exactly. So let's be very cautious, believers, not to look and put all of our stock in just signs and wonders, because there will be counterfeit signs and wonders at the end times. And that's not the only thing that we've got. We've already got the final word, and that is Jesus Christ. He's the Logos, or the Logos, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have all those words in the written Word, which was totally inspired by God. And that's the sign we needed most, his death, burial, and resurrection. Don't forget that. That's important. Right. And we see people clamoring today also about the rise of AI and the use of deep fakes, where you can alter an image with the face of someone else and put their voice to words that they never said, and it sounds and looks so real, you would think that it is. We'll be seeing a lot more of it. The false prophet, this third entity in the unholy trinity, will also compel each person to receive a permanent mark of some kind. We were talking about this way back in the 70s. Just as the slaves did back in John's day, and that mark showed total devotion, or I might use a different word, subjugation to the Antichrist, and a renunciation of God. They would recant their belief just for the purpose of getting this mark because they wanted to live. They wanted to be able to do commerce and to eat because only those who receive the mark will be permitted to engage in commerce. So to accept the mark means eternal death, as we see in Revelation 14.10. The Bible indicates that humans will fully understand that by accepting this mark, They're not only accepting an economic system, but they will also be accepting a worship system, one that rejects Jesus Christ. That's one of the reasons why I think that it's silly that some people were thinking that to get a shot of some sort of vaccine, that was the mark of the beast. We're going to fully understand that by accepting a mark, we're accepting not just an economic system, but a worship system and we're going to know that we are rejecting Jesus Christ. No one knows precisely what this means. We don't know what that number, 666, means, that mark of the beast. Some believe that the Antichrist's first, middle, and last names will have six letters each. Well, that's going to happen with a lot of names. Some people believe that the designation 666 refers to a computer chip, because some computer programs start with 666. Okay, well, I'm sure that many probably do. A lot of people have spent way too much time 
fretting over this number. And we don't want to dive into a deep rabbit hole of speculation because we just don't know. And since our main objective really should be to remain firmly connected to the vine, because we're the branches, and we need to be actively involved in revealing Christ and his character to people around us, even when our world appears to be falling apart. All you have to do is read 1 Thessalonians from Paul's helpful advice about that. So anyway, Satan is the anti-God, the beast is the anti-Christ, and the false prophet is the anti-spirit. This unholy trinity will persecute believers and will deceive many others, resulting in their eternal death. But God's kingdom will prevail. Daniel 7, verses 21 and 22 states, I was watching, and the same horn, that's the power or ruler, was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And I have a happy news after all of that bleakness. Everything that is anti-God is just awful. It's nice to know that there is a time coming when all of that evil will be, be put away. Yep. But when we look at passages, whether they're from Revelation or Daniel or one of the other prophetic uh, passages, it's easy to speculate that things are unfolding just like the Bible says. You know, that should bolster our faith. Yep. But at the same time, we need to be ready because Christ could be calling us to himself at any time. You know, things are going to get really nasty, and we want to be taken out of there before that happens. And, you know, as we've said so many times, this could happen at any time. It really could. You know, and I'm thinking that we would be remiss if we didn't offer an opportunity for our fellow theologians to to lock down their decision to take a stand in faith for Jesus Christ. I think there's a couple of ways that we might want to do that. For those that already know him, they need to really lock in that they're devoted to him and that they should be about the kingdom work and they should, can start looking for opportunities to witness to others in their sphere of influence. And for those who haven't made that first decision, it's vital that they do it. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation, and they need to take that step right now, because we don't know when this is all going to come to pass. And we don't say this to be manipulative either. What we see in Scripture is this same sense of urgency is what Jesus wanted us to live with. It's what Paul told us that we should be living with. Live as though it could happen anytime, but keep living. Don't give up on it. Don't go off and hide somewhere thinking, okay, it's ready. God's going to raise us up off this hillside. Keep living, but keep living for Christ. And so this sense of urgency is something that I'm glad we get to live with it. We get to understand that we need to live emboldened by God's Spirit with the wisdom that helps us discern what's false so that we can cling to what's true and we can make a difference in the world around us because we're bringing little bits of the kingdom to earth knowing that that's a foreshadowing of the new heaven and the new earth, which will happen after all this is over. As alluded to allegorically in The Return of the King from J.R.R. Tolkien. You, know, you talk about that sense of urgency. That was given to me the first time I heard the gospel when I made my decision. Yeah. And next week will be my 50th spiritual birthday. That same urgency is is here today as it was 50 years ago 
Uh-huh. Even more so. But I responded to it because I knew of my need. I was confronted with my sin, and I knew that I need to confess it and move forward and apply the uh, the blood of Jesus to wash it all away. That was almost 50 years ago. Wow, and I cool. didn't think I would be here 50 years later because, as we talked about that night, events were unfolding that were uh, needed to take place before the coming of Christ, and more of them are happening every day. That's a good word, and it's good to know that we can live with this urgency. We don't have to grow cold in our faith, because 50 years is a pretty long time in earth years, but we can live with urgency all the way through that. I I did not know that about that. That's great. Happy almost birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me lead us in a prayer, and I'll start with the unbelievers or those who have been unbelievers, but they're getting it now. They're starting to understand, I need to become a believer. I need to place my faith in Christ. I'll start there, and then I'll say a prayer for those who have been walking with Christ, but they need that sense of urgency. If you want to trust Christ, you can say something quite simple and heartfelt, something kind of like this. Lord, I recognize that what I've been learning about in the Bible, your word, is that I need you. I need a Savior. I need somebody to walk with me through this world's problems because this world is kind of a mess. And I feel like that I need something more purposeful. And I recognize that something that needs to last well beyond my lifetime. And I can see that. I can see that you have created us for eternity. You've placed eternity in my heart. In fact, I have a sense that I'm supposed to live longer than just what we get on this earth. And I can't do that apart from Christ. He's the only way for that to happen. And so I just turn my life over to him right now. I trust him with my life. And I thank you for forgiving me of my sin because of what Christ did for me on the cross. And I I pray that you will fill me up with your Holy Spirit as I get to know more about you by reading about you in your word so that you'll be transforming me day by day to become more and more like Christ. I want to be a change agent in the world around me. I want to bring a little bit of the kingdom of heaven to earth And I want to influence the people around me in a positive way. And so help me to do that as I walk with you, not just for the rest of my life on earth, but all the way into eternity, where I'll get to share in the inheritance with the Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And now, if you're a believer and you've kind of been like Rick and me, you might have even been walking with him for years. But there's just that sense of, I don't know, I've read about this stuff before. We've seen it in the news. There are all these false predictions about when the Lord's coming again. Why should I put much stock in that? I would say, you need to read Daniel and Revelation. And you need to read that in light of all the New Testament, seeing how all the Old Testament plays into what was fulfilled in the New Testament, and look at the whole meta story and recognize uh, there is coming a time. In fact, Satan would love for to lull us into a sort of a sleepy attitude in which we don't have an urgency. We don't really think that there's anything to worry about, because when he does return, it's going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to be just like bang in the blink of an eye, and we'll think, uh-oh, how did that happen? I didn't see that coming. We want to see it coming. We want to be eager for his return, and if it does happen in our lifetime, we'll be ready. If it doesn't, we want to keep living with urgency because we want to make our world a better place by living for him when we are seeing events like we're seeing today unfold all around us. So you could pray a prayer like this. God, 
Forgive me for becoming lukewarm. Forgive me for just kind of being mamby-pamby about some of these things like apocalyptic literature or revelation, because I just figure, oh, I can't know that stuff anyway. Help me to read enough of it to at least be aware that what you're trying to do is to light a fire in us so that we will live for you with urgency every day of our lives. I want to do that. I want to live my life as though everything we do for you really makes a difference on this planet and for eternity. Help me to become bold in how I live for you. Help me to share you with others, not just in my deeds and in my lifestyle, but in words whenever possible, and doing so in a winsome, loving, compassionate manner, but not mixing the truth. Help me to just be as truthful and honest as I can about my belief in you. You are what matters most, and you're the one who's going to take me into eternity. No matter what the world may seem like at the time, I want to have that courage to stand for you and to live for you. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. I am very grateful that we get to look at these things because God speaks to my heart as we study that stuff. And he gets me to praying these prayers and to remind me that I need to be urgent and bold and to speak boldly when I'm speaking Christ to others, as you mentioned. So we have some more to talk about on this subject, and I'm looking forward to that. Yes, indeed. If Christ has not returned by the next time we do this, we do pray that you will continue to live with urgency uh, to thank God for every day that he's allowed you to be on this planet because you can represent him to others. And we pray that you will join us again the next time for some more of the End Times characters at the next episode of Monday, Monday Afternoon, afternoon. Theologians. 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 Theologians.